Hello, everyone. Good morning and happy Sabbath. I'm glad you could join us for our Saturday morning live stream. Uh, as Jin Hao is mentioning, we're going to start transitioning our digital meetings to face-to-face meetings uh, slowly but surely, but it's so exciting and I'm really looking forward to actually just catching up with you guys in person and and um, just yeah, being around people is going to be so nice. Being around you is going to be so nice. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're excited that at least today we can go out, uh, socially and catch up for a walk. And so we hope that, uh, we can see at four o'clock at the, at the, bot- uh, botanical gardens. Um, so we're going to be starting a new series entitled A Tale of Three Kings and, oopsie. In this series, we're going to be visiting the stories of uh, Saul, David, and Ahab, uh, three notable kings um, in the history of Israel. And uh, we're going to be looking at how the mistakes of each of these kings shaped their lives. And I think mistakes can be a very challenging thing to... Um, I guess, resolve in one's mind. I think a lot of times we feel very shaped by the decisions that we've made. We feel... Um, that the mistakes that we make can really keep us from missed opportunities. And so today we're going to be, or excuse me, for the next couple sermons in this series, we're going to be looking at how God responds to our mistakes. So today we're going to be looking at the life of King Saul. Now I want to give a bit of a disclaimer uh, for this message that the, the story of Saul is a bit of a sad story. And really, um, for me at least, how God interacts with Saul can only be seen in a positive light in contrast to um, David and Ahab. And so that's why this is a, this is a multi-series uh, message. So today we're going to look at King Saul. And um, yeah, I'm just going to ask you to bear with the sad story. And then next time we'll hear the, the, the glad story or the happy story. So... Just to give you a little bit of a background um, of King Saul, he's the first king of Israel, and um, when you read through the story of King Saul, if you if you go through First Samuel chapter ten to fifteen, uh, we kind of see the ascension and the reign of King Saul. And when I read a story, I, I like it when there's significant character development. Um, if there's a harsh judgment that gets passed on from God, um, I want to understand why the character is judged. Uh, in this story, though, the literary structure of First and Second Samuel doesn't allow for this to happen. There isn't a whole lot of explanation, and it requires a lot of background study to actually understand why the judgment of God comes so harshly um, on Saul. So there are three specific chapters that are dedicated to the reign of Saul. And in these three chapters, uh, Saul is the protagonist of the story, and he makes these two mistakes, which we're going to cover today, and he loses his throne. Now, while Saul remains alive for the next 39 chapters, and his life significantly impacts the story of Israel, we're going to see that there's a shift in the story from Saul being the protagonist to Saul becoming the antagonist. And he's the antagonist of his successor, David, and we'll, we'll learn about David next time. So the way that this story is written communicates simply that Saul is not chosen in contrast to the fact that David is chosen. So today we're going to see um, how Saul becomes 
I guess, unchosen. So let's visit the two mistakes. We're going to be going through 1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open them up to this chapter, but I will be narrating um, most of the verses and we'll have them here on the screen. So in this story, or in this chapter, Saul offers a sacrifice, and it's kind of like a forbidden sacrifice in that there's a prophet by the name of Samuel, and he's supposed to offer the sacrifice, but Saul steps in preemptively and offers a sacrifice before Samuel can offer it. Now, the setting of the story is that Saul wants to go to war with the Philistines, and unless uh, he... Uh, excuse me, Saul wants to go to war with the Philistines. And in normal circumstances, if Israel is attacked first, they are allowed to respond uh, with war. But if Israel wants to preemptively start war, they need permission from God. And this sacrifice communicates that God accepts and gives permission for uh, this act of this act of war. <clears throat> Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are moments when Israelites go to war with the nations around them. And the idea of proactive, permissible war uh, is a challenge to accept, especially uh, with our current values. Um, how can genocide ever be per permissible in, in any circumstance? And um, how would you go one step further and call this a, a, an act of holiness? Now, in the Old Testament, permissible war is considered judgment. And while history is littered with uh, the abuse of the idea of holy war, uh, the Old Testament has a lot of examples where Israelite does go to war uh, with the surrounding nations. Here's a verse here in Judges chapter 20, verses 23. It says, uh, And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. And so here we have this one example where uh, God gives the green light and says, you're allowed to fight. Here's another example in Genesis fifteen sixteen. And God is speaking to Abraham here, and he says, In the fourth generation, they, being God's people, shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so the implication here is that uh, Abraham has promised this land that's already inhabited by a group of people called the Amorites. And um, basically God is saying, look, it's not time for judgment because, um, yeah, they... Um, he uses this, this phrase, his iniquity is not, their iniquity is not complete yet. In other words, there is a time and a place where, uh, the wrongs are going to be so great that judgment needs to be enacted. And so, um, yeah, God basically says there's a time and a place for that. Now, in very few cases does God instruct Israel to completely destroy a nation. Uh, these cases only make sense through the perspective of God's judgment. But often we're, uh, when we're faced with making decisions that influence life and death, we kind of ask this ethical question, what makes you God? If somebody makes a decision where they are saying uh, someone is allowed to die, we really struggle with that. But here in the Bible, we have this example where God is indeed judge, and he says it is now time to enact judgment. And so while with our current um 
I guess our current ethical standards, uh, we we have a really difficult time with this idea of uh, of war in the Old Testament. But um, through the perspective of judgment, this makes a lot more sense. I realize I've repeated myself several times, so we'll move on here. Now, in the Old Testament, what happens is that God investigates the morality of the nations and acts according to that investigation. Now, there's more on this topic. Um, there's a great blog entitled, uh, Why Did God Command the Invasion of Canaan in the Book of Joshua? And the Bible Project uh, creates these videos, and they also write um, at length on this topic. And it's, it's a great article, so I highly recommend that you take a look at it um, when you've got the time. So back to the story of Saul. Saul is faced with an enemy, the Philistines. He wants to attack, and he's supposed to wait on Samuel to get permission before attacking. And in this story, uh, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul does not wait. He has these skirmishes with the Philistines, and the Philistines get tired of uh, this pesky Israelite king attacking them. And so they kind of gather their forces together, and they create this massive army uh and in 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 the chapter it says that there are 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and there uh, are foot soldiers uh that number the sand of the sea and so it's kind of like communicating this massive massive force. And so we pick up in the story in verses 8 to 14. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 8 to 14. And here's what the Bible says. He, being Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Sorry. (laughs) And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now in the original language, that phrase, uh, kept what the Lord commanded you, there's like a play on on words that verb commanded is appointed and so there's kind of this connection between Saul not keeping the commandment of the Lord and therefore not keeping his appointment um, from the Lord and so uh, what we see here is that uh, Samuel kind of corrects Saul and says hey you made a mistake here and what's important uh, whenever people in the Bible make mistakes is how they respond to the correction, how they respond to the mistake. And rather than uh, responding with repentance or contrition or this genuine sense of realizing, yeah, I made a mistake, uh, what we read here is that Saul starts making excuses. Um, you know, 
Saul doesn't recognize that it was wrong for him to attack first uh, and then ask for permission later. Uh, something that um, my boys, and I'm guilty of it too, is that uh, when we sit down for uh, family, re- uh, family meals, uh, my kids regularly eat as they pray. And uh, something that we try to instill our practice in our family is just kind of thanking God for the food that he's provided and asking God to bless the food as well, because um, we recognize that God is a sustainer of our life. And yeah, oftentimes like we're all, you know, bow my head for prayer and the boys will shove food in their mouth and they're like, good Jesus, thank you for food, amen. And, you know, there's something very human about taking what we want first and then asking God to come along for the ride. And, and, Basically, in this story, Saul does that. He just kind of, he he doesn't value waiting on God. So Saul makes these excuses up, um, and he, he also tries to create this false sense of security. Like, yes, he makes excuses, but he also tries to manipulate religion to meet his own needs. He, he realizes that the army is scattered, that they're afraid, and he kind of thinks, okay, well, if I offer this sacrifice, maybe everybody will come back because there's this false sense of, or that there'll be this sense of um, God blessing what we're doing. And of course, that wasn't that wasn't true. Now, uh, another thing that um, another problem that's created by Saul's uh, hastiness is that um, in this particular situation. He's not sure, he's not 100% sure that God wants him to attack or how God wants him to attack. And there are times where God gives specific instructions. And so when, when he preemptively attacks, um, the Philistines, um, there isn't this certainty of whether or not the people are innocent. And, and Saul kind of has this problem, um, in his, in, 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 in his leadership of preemptively attacking people in his zeal. And so there's a story here in 2 Samuel 21 verses 1 and 2. It says, during David's reign, there was a severe famine which lasted for three full years. So David, and David is, um, Saul's successor, consulted the Lord about it, and the Lord said, Saul and his family are guilty of murder. He put the people of Gibeon to death. The people of Gibeon were not Israelites. They were a small group of Amorites whom the Israelites had promised to protect. But Saul had tried to destroy them because of his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So here we see uh, the first example of this in 1 Samuel 13. And then in 2 Samuel 21, we see that this was kind of like uh, sort of a habit for, for uh, Saul. And so um, the result is that Saul is not allowed to build a legacy in Israel. Now, something that's important to note here is that um, God isn't taking away the monarchy from Saul. He isn't saying you're not allowed to be king. He's just saying you're not allowed uh, to establish a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to be taken from you. So if you go back to... Um, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, he just says, you, or Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly, you've not kept the commandment of the Lord, and therefore um, your kingdom will not be established forever. So Saul attacks when he shouldn't attack. Now, when you read the rest of the story, um, God protects Israel and he allows Saul to win the battle through a series of um, miraculous circumstances. And I guess the challenge of this story is that 
ultimately the Philistines were the enemy of Saul, but he just, there's something about waiting on God that gives you wisdom and discernment to not, um, hastily, um, unwisely make decisions. And Saul does exactly that. Um, the second mistake that Saul makes is quite the opposite. Um, in the first mistake, Saul makes the mistake of doing the right thing at the wrong time. Um, in the second mistake, we're going to read that God gives Saul a specific instruction and he doesn't complete the task. Um, so let's read about that. So First Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. The story goes, Saul is commanded to attack the Amalekites and wipe out everything. So uh, Samuel says to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek... Uh, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. So here in chapter 15, Samuel returns to Saul with another mission. And this is really, really important because um, whenever someone is offered a mission in Scripture, it's considered a privilege. And so when Samuel comes to Saul, it's an opportunity, maybe not for vindication, but it's an opportunity for him to do good. Um, and so when Saul has this opportunity, it gives him a chance to experience grace. Uh, let's say Saul would complete this mission successfully. His reputation would grow People would acknowledge him as king. Um, they would recognize his authority. And also, his obedience would go noted. Well, we continue reading on in the story, First Samuel 15, verses 7 to 9. It says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites uh, from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. We continue reading. We jump to verses 12 to 21. And Saul wrote, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? So, here, Saul doesn't complete the mission. Instead of wiping out everything, he keeps the best of the spoils alive, in the name of sacrificing them later on. And then he also keeps the king of life. And uh, back in those days, there was this custom of keeping the king alive as a trophy. It was kind of this rite of um, conquering. And so um, when Samuel comes to Saul, Saul is so happy about what he's accomplished. Um, but when Samuel challenges him and says, hey, why 
why are there things alive from this mission, Saul begins to make up excuses. And uh, I'll just share them instead of reading them. Uh, Saul says, look, I spared the best of the sheep for sacrifice. I kept the king of the Malachites alive, but I destroyed the rest. Uh, the soldiers, they wanted to take the best of the spoils of the battle for sacrifice. And so Saul is shifting blame. He tries to tell Samuel that he's looking at the situation from a glass half empty perspective. Um, and, and he's trying to highlight all the good that he has done. But notice how Samuel responds to Saul. Verse 23, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So here, Samuel tells Saul that he's lost his throne, and the implication is that he would lose his throne in his lifetime. And after the judgment, when you read the verse again, you see that uh, even though Saul shows some sort of remorse, he's really primarily concerned with himself and his public image. Uh, that phrase, return with me, that I can bow before the Lord, um, is, is a public act of worship, and it would communicate God's favor. And so when Saul says, Samuel, come with me to this place of worship, and then let's offer a, a, a sin sacrifice, Saul knows that everybody would look at the situation and say, okay, God forgive Saul, it's okay. And Samuel wants to communicate to Saul, this is a really big mistake, and you're losing the kingdom for it. Now, Bill Arnold says that uh, partial obedience is really disobedience made to look acceptable. And Saul, oh, excuse me, Samuel summarizes the implications of this partial uh, obedience. And so going back to verse 23 um, and in its entirety, Samuel says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So this assessment may seem harsh at first, and there are a couple concepts in this verse that are highlighted. One is the idea of idolatry, and the other is the um, idea of divination or sorcery. And so uh, just to kind of go into this a little bit, um, you know, when when Saul gives partial obedience to God, um, he's kind of editing the commands of God. And as he edits the commands of God and tries to make them acceptable, that is ultimately what idolatry is. He is making up his own form of God. Um, and 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 Saul kind of, or Samuel tells Saul, you know, your heart is a heart of rebellion. In other words, you're just doing what you want to do. So whether by hook or by crook, whether by manipulation or whatever it is that you can do, you're trying to just accomplish what you want. And ultimately, um, Samuel says, this is what sorcery is about. And at the end of Saul's life, he goes to see this necromancer um, and, and he does practice sorcery uh, because he's just in a desperate place. And so the author, I think, kind of injects this into the judgment um, to uh, foreshadow uh, what would happen at the end of Saul's life.
Now, I started this sermon by saying that we're going to look at the mistakes of people in the Bible to provide hope and not feel like our mistakes are so fatal. And this first example seems like a pretty poor example because Saul makes two mistakes and it just seems like everything is taken away from him. And what I want to highlight here is that uh, a lot of the story of Saul uh, fixates on his mistakes. Uh, he kind of comes across as this insecure, incompetent, hasty leader, and ultimately his story is a bit of a, a tragedy. But every now and then in the Bible, there'll just be this one line, and that one line kind of changes the perspective of the story. Um, and so I want to share that one line with you here uh, in, in, in Scripture. So in Acts chapter 13, verse 21, in the New Testament, uh, it gives commentary on uh, the, the, the monarchy or the, the, the reign of Saul. And it says, uh, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And what I want to highlight from this verse is that Saul remains king for a really long time. And when we read about his mistakes, we just read about them in a small snapshot of scripture. It's like three chapters, he makes two mistakes, and it seems like he loses everything. Uh, but when you look at his life from a bird's eye perspective, you see that he has 40 years to be king. And in the Bible, uh, whenever people repent and come to God, even when God doesn't want to forgive them, he does. And the, the the grace in this story is not explicit. It's kind of hidden. Um, and so what I want to do is look at a couple more instances of the story that help you, uh, that, that help us to see that Saul doesn't see the grace of God, even though it's there. So in first Samuel chapter 18 verses six to nine, what we see here is that Saul has become this king, uh, or, excuse me, Paul has, <laughs> Saul has established himself as king. And there's this young upstart by the name of David. He's a warrior. He's a musician. He's well spoken of. Um, and, and Saul, uh, basically enlists him to be the commander of his army. And David has incredible success and Saul knows in the back of his mind, I'm going to lose the kingdom. But we read here, 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 to 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry uh, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, Saul feels slighted by this. But 
there are women in Israel who are like singing his name, saying he has killed thousands and David his ten thousands, and, and they're singing his accomplishments. Like I don't have women dancing in the streets of Melbourne singing praises about Roy's accomplishments, and and I'm just saying that Saul gets so fixated on wanting all the praise and adoration and respect and from everyone in his uh, everyone in his country that when he sees someone who gets a little bit more respect it just kind of tears him down like he he loses the sight of the fact that he is still king and you know from acts 13 for 40 years he kind of sits in this insecurity when you read through the book of first samuel um you find that the people start shifting their affections from Saul to David. But something that's really important is that throughout the whole book of 1 Samuel, even in the decline of Saul, the people of Israel obey Saul. He still has incredible influence. He has incredible power. And the people care about him. But his the judgment that's pronounced by God kind of destroys his heart. And he doesn't make the most of what he has. Now, the text says that Saul eyes David, and rightly so, because David ends up being king. And he just, he senses, like, the Spirit of God is moving in David, and it is inevitable. I'm going to lose my throne to this person. And one could argue that Saul becomes defensive of his throne for the sake of Jonathan, his son. Uh, It could be argued that Saul is just, there's a healthy kind of jealousy where Saul is just being protective. But when you get to know the character of Jonathan, um, it reveals some more information to this story. So in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 16 to 18, we read that uh, Jonathan actually really respects David. Jonathan cares for David incredibly. And we read here in verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So here, Jonathan sees this coming a mile away, and he says, David, you're going to be the king. I just want you to know I'm happy to be your right-hand man. Like, I'm happy to step aside. You ascend to the throne, and I'm happy with that. And so when Saul kind of protects his 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 uh, protects his throne, and he's trying to protect Jonathan's throne, Jonathan doesn't want Saul to protect it. He's just kind of saying, look, your time has come. Just step aside. And of course, in the time of ancient Middle Eastern um, monarchy, that isn't a normal thing. The, the peaceful transference of power just never happens. And it is a huge sign of disrespect and shame to lose your throne. Um, but, you know, in the modern, like for us today, that, that isn't uh, an abnormal thing. Uh, in many cases, we want that to happen. And that's why every time the elections roll around, we're, well, half of the people, almost half of the people might be hoping for change. And oftentimes there is a transference of 
there is a peaceful transference of power. Uh, but in this particular case, Saul is just not able to bring himself to do it. And for me, I often ask myself the question as I'm reading this story, what would happen, what would have happened if Saul basically stepped aside and said, David, you take the throne. I feel like his tragic death could be avoided. Um, in the end of the story, uh, uh, both Saul and Jonathan end up dying in battle. Um, and, and, you know, his conflict with David, um, divides his army. It, it keeps him from the blessing of God. It really ends up being his, his, his ending. But if he were to in humility step aside, I feel like he would have been able to live this long, peaceful, happy life. And of course, uh, dealing with pride is a difficult thing. Um, but in the case of Saul, um, his mistakes do hurt him. But what is also evident is that the goodness and the grace of God are still there. And so for me, the main, I guess, lesson or the main takeaway point from the story is that the judgment of our mistakes combined with the judgment of God does not take away the grace of God. Even though Saul made the first mistake, he's given a second chance. Even though he makes a mistake a second time, he still has the kingdom for 40 years. The people still respect him. He still has influence. He still has the ability to do good. He's just not able to do it because he can't see or sense the goodness of God. And so today, for those of you who are maybe feeling like, ah, God, I just feel like I've made so many mistakes. It's such a, there is a tendency to fixate on the mistakes and to be taken away by them. And I want to share with you today that even though those mistakes may have been there and may have been a part of your history, that the grace of God is still there. And as we explore the next two stories of David and Ahab, this will become more and more evident and we'll be able to contrast the different stories. And so I look forward to exploring that with you. But I hope that from today, from Saul's mistakes, you can gain some sense of encouragement in seeing that God is still there. Would you join me for prayer as we close? Father God, we come before you today and I just want to ask that as we are faced with um, our past, as we are faced with the mistakes that we make in the present, uh, as we face the difficulties, um, our, our difficulties, I just want to pray that your grace, that your presence would still be felt. Father, as Saul was sidetracked by his, um, I guess by his fixation on holding power, um, he lost sight of your grace. And I pray that um, as we are faced with our expectations of our idolatry or the things that we fixate on, uh, that you would help us to genuinely connect with you and as a result, um, be able to find healing and restoration. So I pray these things in your name. Amen.